For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your holy and righteous word. We pray that we'll get insight into it. We'll understand because your Holy Spirit teaches us to treat and handle your word accurately. And for us, Lord, to glorify you and also to rejoice in your salvation and what you have granted to us by the knowledge, the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we will grow in grace and knowledge the grace and knowledge we need that we might please you, fear you, honor you, love you with our whole heart. Grant that to us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time we were in verse 28. Verses 28 to 29, they are together, they go together, because here at the conclusion of this chapter, he is trying to wrap up things in terms of the collection or the gathering of the true people of God into one group. That is, those among Jews and those among Gentiles becoming one people of God. In verse 28, we saw last time that the Jews who reject the gospel, they are considered enemies. They are enemies of the gospel, but God is able to use the enemies of the gospel, the physical Jews, for your sake. Verse 28 and that is because they are enemies, therefore the apostles reject preaching to them to an extent. They first go to them, and after they reject it, then they move on to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles benefit from it. But also, the Gentiles were once enemies of God. Romans 5, 8 to 10. The Gentiles were also once enemies of God and now are reconciled. But not all of them. Some of them, the remnant of them, are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, the Jews, he says, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. But who are the beloved for the sake of the fathers? By God's choice, from that standpoint. Well, the elect among the Jews, not every physical Jew but the elect among the Jews, just like among the Gentiles, every elect Gentile is chosen by God, beloved of God, because Jew and Gentile both benefit from the covenants that God has made, the promises God has made, 
to the fathers, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises have as their centerpiece, their focal point, the spiritual promises of eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is what we saw last time. Spiritual promises, though there were physical aspects to it, inheritance of the land of Canaan, many descendants in the land of Canaan, a kingship in the land of Canaan, the Davidic dynasty in the land of Canaan. Yes, there were physical aspects to it, but its goal, all their goal, the goals of all of these physical things was the spiritual, the eternal, the heavenly. And that's the focal point of the Old Testament, and that's even the focal point of Romans, the book of Romans and the Bible in the New Testament. The focal point is salvation, eternal salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the Bible is all about. Jesus taught it, the apostles taught it, the prophets taught it in anticipation, and now the apostles teach it in terms of the accomplished announcement, or the announcement is made because the events have been accomplished. Considering that, now we come to verse 29. Because it says in verse 29, for... Why does he say for, F-O-R, in this case? He says for because for in this context, grammatically speaking, means because. In English, there are different ways to say because. And this is one of them, F-O-R, for, in this context. When for starts a clause or starts a sentence, it typically has the purpose of explaining the reason. It's known as a causal conjunction. What caused it? What is the reason for this previous statement or the following statement? What is the connection between these two statements? The causal conjunction is F-O-R in this case. And we do have it at the beginning of a clause. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So we should ask, he says everything in verse 28 and even previous to that, because it's all founded on, it's all hinging on, it has as its base the gifts and the calling of God, which are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If we understand that truth, it will make sense of everything. That God's gifts to us His calling uh, um, of us are irrevocable. Irrevocable means he doesn't break promises. He doesn't say one thing one day and then change his mind the other day. He doesn't behave like a liar behaves. He doesn't take back. He doesn't change. That's what it means for him to be irrevocable. We shall explore that some more. But first... When it says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, we should ask, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that in this context? In this context, is it a spiritual, eternal, salvational context? Is this what he's talking about? Or is he talking about something else? We must ask this question because there are those who think He is talking about something else. And that's how they get around uh, what's uncomfortable to the flesh 
the doctrine of God's choice, the doctrine of God's election or predestination of some individuals to eternal life and the rest of mankind, the individuals, the rest of the individuals of mankind to eternal destruction. To some to eternal life and the rest to eternal death or destruction. That's the doctrine that is despised by the flesh. Actually, the world, the flesh, and the devil despise that doctrine. They want nothing to do with that doctrine. And because they want nothing to do with that doctrine, they come up with alternative interpretations of verse 29. But in this context, should we not consider the spiritual interpretation? And we'll come back to prove that. But what are these misinterpretations? What are these distortions? How is it that false interpreters, false teachers, take verse 29 and distort it to their own destruction? What are they? One, they say that it is natural gifts and calling. Natural. That is, whatever innate talents and abilities and gifts we have, that the apostle is talking about that. He's talking about our natural abilities. Some people have natural abilities to remember. Others have natural abilities to work with their hands, make things out of wood. Others out of metal. Others are able to run very fast. Others cannot run very fast. Some are very intelligent in the kitchen. They know how to cook. And others do not know how to cook. There are so many things that are natural. But he's not talking about anything like that here, is he? Is that the subject matter of the book of Romans? Is that the subject matter of chapters 9, 10, and 11? Is that the subject matter of chapter 11? Natural abilities? Natural gifts? No. So why would he be talking about that? The second false interpretation is that he's talking about uh, national election. National choice. That is, God chose Israel as a nation to be the recipients and the custodians of the Word of God and the covenants of God, the temple of God, all of these benefits that Israel received as a nation, that's what he has in mind. That God will not revoke any of their national privileges, national benefits, receiving the Word of God, receiving the patriarchs, receiving all the prophets, receiving the covenants, receiving the temple service. Is that the focal point of the book of Romans? Is that the focal point of chapters 9, 10, and 11? Is that what he's discussing in chapter 11? No, he does make mention of that fact that they did receive the promises of God. They did receive the words of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 that one and two, that they received the oracles of God. They received circumcision, the rituals of God. That's true. It is also true that in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he makes a list of the benefits, the national benefits that they received. He says in 9.4, to who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, 
who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. They received all those wonderful benefits. It's true. But he's saying, though they received those benefits, those benefits have not helped them because they don't have faith. They don't have faith. They don't have repentance because God didn't choose many of them or most of them, but only a remnant of them. So now we're back to the spiritual focus. His focus is not the national benefits, but the national benefits in contrast to their widespread unbelief and lack of election. That's what he's talking about. So it's not a national book. The book of Romans is not talking about nationalism for the Jews. And then thirdly, the third misinterpretation, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, such as 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. He's talking about spiritual gifts, that once God deposits them, once God endows us with them, he doesn't take them back. Yet, is that the matter under discussion here? Is that the matter he's been expounding here in the book of Romans? Has he been, has he so far mentioned any of the miraculous spiritual gifts of the Spirit that believers receive at least one gift? Has he addressed that subject at all? No. So why distort it? They want to distort it because they don't want to believe in God's choice, election, predestination unto salvation, and predestination unto reprobation. They don't want that doctrine, so they find alternatives. In this chapter, he has made it very clear. He says in 11.5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. A remnant of what? Saved people among Jews and Gentiles. Verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Why would he contrast grace and works? Because he's talking about salvation. And verse 7, What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. There we have the two destinies, the two outcomes, the two choices of God or decrees of God. One for those who were chosen and the rest for those who were hardened. It's salvation. It's salvation Salvation, salvation. That is the subject matter. Romans 11, 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. He's talking about salvation. What about also in chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 15? For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Reconciliation. What kind of reconciliation? Between enemies, enemies who are reconciled. And who are the enemies? We are the enemies of God. Jews and Gentiles in unbelief are enemies of God. But then there's reconciliation. 
There's an alliance or a friendship because of redemption in Christ. Also, 11.26. 11.26. Thus, all Israel will be saved. Saved. He doesn't mean natural abilities. He doesn't mean natural benefits. He doesn't mean spiritual gifts. He says saved, will be saved. And in 27, when I take away their sins. We're talking about salvation from sin in this context. Keep that in mind. And now as we approach verse 29, then what would be, in the true interpretation, what would be the gifts? He says it in the plural. What would be the gifts that God gifted to us? What would they be? And we propose at least three. One, rebirth. Two, faith. And three, repentance. Rebirth, regeneration, to be born again, is a gift of God, something we don't deserve. Also, faith. Faith in Christ. That we do have faith does not originate in us, but it is a gift that descends from heaven by the work of the Spirit who has regenerated us. It's a gift of God. Faith is. And thirdly, repentance. Repentance is not something we do, though it comes from us. It does not originate in us. Repentance is granted. It is also a gift of God's grace. The gifts are rebirth, faith, and repentance. Why should we say rebirth is a gift? Why say rebirth? John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 3. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? Is it physical rebirth? No. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again to see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God. He has to be born again. Then Nicodemus thinks Jesus means the physical way. But Jesus clarifies, I'm not talking about the physical way. But even then, think about our physical birth. Which baby, which conceived baby in the womb, who's one day old in the womb, which conceived baby in the womb caused his conception, caused his birth? None. None an external, outside source, apart from the individual baby in the womb, caused it. 
That is father and mother in terms of the human connection. Of course, it all comes from God. But in terms of the human immediate cause, it's the parents of the child, not the child. The child didn't cause anything to happen. He didn't exert his desire to be created. He didn't say, yes, I vote for my own creation. He didn't do anything like that. Yes, I chose my parents. No, it doesn't happen that way. So Jesus chose to say born again on purpose so that Nicodemus might understand it has to be a gift from heaven. God has to be the one who causes it to initiate it. And why would he do so? Because he's choosing us. Not because we are lovely, but because he is choosing us. Because Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 explicitly teach how sinful we are. We are unlovely. We are ugly, spiritually speaking. All of us. And we need God to change us, to produce a miracle and make an ugly soul a beautiful soul. And that takes a gift of God. Jesus clarifies this point in verse 5, that one has to be born of the Spirit. Verse 6, born of the Spirit. Verse 8, born of the Spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent who causes our rebirth, who changes the dead human heart and makes it alive. Same in John 6, 63. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It is the Spirit who gives life. Also, let's turn to 1 Timothy uh, first Peter, first Peter, chapter one, first Peter, chapter one, verses one to three. First Peter one one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this has to do with salvation as he says in verses 4 to 9. It has to do with salvation, our eternal salvation. In verse 9 he says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Why did God cause us to be born again? For the salvation of our souls. And in verse 1 he says that we are chosen. In verse 2, according to the foreknowledge, which means the previous or love beforehand, the loving choice God made beforehand to save us. Verse 2, also the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which is just like John 6.63 and John 3.3 to 8. The work of the Spirit to set us apart, to sanctify us, to change the dead heart, to a living heart. 
And the result is that we obey Jesus Christ. In what way? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And verse 3, if it's not clear so far in verses 1 to 2, verse 3 should end all dispute. Because it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, mercy toward those who don't deserve it. Mercy is a term for those who are not punished for their criminal acts. That's what mercy is. We are sinful criminals before God, but we receive mercy. How? Has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God caused us to be born again. Just like our parents caused us to be born, God causes us to be born again in the spiritual way. We don't cause our rebirth. We don't cause it based on will, free will, goodwill, free choice, whatever terms we use, we don't cause it. God causes our rebirth. So that must be a gift, a gift that descends from heaven and changes the perverse, depraved heart that we all have and gives us a new heart. Further, we said that faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. Is that the case? Yes. Look at first Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 5. Romans 12, 3 to 5. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 3 says that God has allotted... God has distributed, God has granted to each a measure of faith. But who are these people to whom God has granted a measure of faith? Is it every person in the world throughout human history? Or every person in the world between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church? Or is it to every one of the elect? who become members of the body of Christ. By the time we reach verse 5, it's very clear he's talking about we who are in the body of Christ. He's not talking about every person throughout human history. He's not talking about every person in the world that ha will exist or has existed from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church. He's talking about the elect. The elect that he has already explained in chapters 9 to 11. He's been explaining them. He's saying that they have a measure of faith. The elect who are in Christ, in the body of Christ, in the church. Also, we note that not all have faith. Based on a misinterpretation of Romans 12.3, false teachers say that all of us have faith, or all of us have a measure of faith. 
based on a distortion of Romans chapter 12, verse 3. But 2 Thessalonians, also written by the Apostle Paul, contradicts that also. Because it says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This addressed to the Thessalonian church to pray for the apostle that the word of God might spread. And he says... He wants to be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. If Romans 12.3 says all have faith, according to the misinterpretation, then why does this verse say not all have faith? Because not all have faith. Not all have true faith. Romans 12.3 is talking about true faith, and 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 2 is talking about true faith. Not all have true faith. People have false faith, but not true faith. And then further notice in verses 3 to 5 that God is faithful. He strengthens. He protects from the evil one. It gives us confidence. We continue in verse 4. The Lord directs our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ, which is perseverance. Correct? These are things that God grants because he has granted us faith. These are gifts of God to us because of faith. In contrast to what God doesn't give to the perverse and evil men who persecute the church. There is a contrast even in 2 Thessalonians 3 between the two. Further, we may cite... Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Philippians 1, 29 to 30, Philippians 1, 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The apostle says it has been granted, which means God is the gifter. He is the one granting this for the sake of Christ. To us, who are the you? Who are the you? For to you. Does to you, is you a reference to every individual in the world throughout history? Is it a reference to every individual between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church? Is the you a reference to every person in any sense? No. It's a reference to the believing Philippians who are a sampling of the true church. The true church has been granted for the sake of Christ to do two things or to receive two things. What are those two? The granting is a gift 
of grace. Two things. To believe in Christ is the first. And the second, to suffer for his sake. To believe in Christ is a gift and to suffer for him is a gift. Does every person in the world suffer for Christ? Does every person in the world suffer between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church? No. They don't even believe in Christ. Most of the world doesn't even believe in Christ. But he says that suffering is a part of the gift of God. In verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The gifts of God. Faith and accompanying that faith is the suffering. For the elect in the church, the true church, not the false church and not in the rest of the world, only in the true church. Furthermore, we said that one of the gifts, initial gifts that continues is repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. We find this in the book of Acts, chapter 11. The book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 18. 11, 18. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. If God grants it, it's a gift. Because of His grace, He granted it. He says to the, or they say, to the Gentiles. They are amazed that God would not only grant repentance to Israel, the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That leads to life. This life is eternal life. This is Cornelius and his household. From chapter 10 of Acts to 11:18, the whole narrative encompasses this event of Cornelius and his household, Gentiles being saved by faith and repentance. And repentance is called a gift in 11:18. And mind you, free willers will say, no, no, no. The opportunity to repent was a gift. The opportunity to repent. The occasion that Simon Peter was sent to preach, that opportunity was the gift, not the actual repentance. But that's not the way it reads. Where does it say, are they not adding words to the text? God has also granted to the Gentiles the opportunity of the repentance that leads to life? Does it say that? Does it give a hint of that? No, it does not. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's pick it up at verse 24. 2, 24. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. When we are preaching and teaching, we are to do so without being quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Why do we use that approach? Because God will use our approach if perhaps, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And this leading to the knowledge of the truth is not merely hearing the truth and comprehending that truth, because it says in verse 26 that they may come to their senses, which means they were insane. They come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. They were entrapped. They were ensnared. They were sons of the devil because they were held captive by him to do his will. When when repentance is not granted, one is out of his mind. He is insane and he is controlled by the devil because the devil has ensnared him and captivated him to do the will of the devil. But when repentance is granted, we escape all that. We are delivered from all that because we have been led to the knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge is not intellectual knowledge. It's not just being able to comprehend what the true gospel is, but it is a true embrace of it by faith and repentance so that we're not dealing with foolish and ignorant speculations, verse 23. So that in verse 22, we are not pursuing youthful lusts. So that in verses 14 to 21, so that we are not wrangling about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So that we're not preaching false theology, such as the resurrection has already taken place, verse 18. So forth. These are evidences that God has granted repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So, regeneration, faith, and repentance, these are the gifts. Now, what about the calling of God? What about the calling of God? That God's calling is irrevocable also. What about that being irrevocable too? What calling does the apostle have in mind? Well, in the Bible, the calling of God has been categorized into two major groups in reference to salvation. Not in reference to vocation, because that is also, in a sense, a calling. We're not talking about our occupation or vocation in life, which is a calling, but we're talking in reference to salvation, The Bible uses it in two major categories. That is, an external call, an outward call, which is by the preaching of the Word, by teaching, preaching, using the Bible, explaining the Bible in evangelism and in apologetics, the use of the Bible. That is the outward external call. But then, the Bible also has another use of the word call, which is the internal call. It's inward call. 
It is that mysterious or secret call of the Holy Spirit. That was mentioned in John 3. We read that earlier. Just as the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know from where it's coming and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus said. In that secret, powerful, mysterious way, the Holy Spirit works inside of the perverse and evil human heart to convert it, to change it. He calls us that way, which is also known as the effectual call. It's also known as the irresistible call. Inward, internal, mysterious, secret, spiritual, irresistible, effectual. These are different words to describe this internal work, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That is the call. So, in the Bible, the external call is made to many people, and only a few of the many actually believe it. Because the few of the many who believe it have the irresistible work of the Spirit working in their heart to convert them. But those who have not the Spirit working in their heart, though they hear the preaching of the Word, the external call, they have the resistible grace of God. They have the resistible grace of the Holy Spirit. They have the ability to mock and malign the message that they hear from the messengers of God. And they do that all the time. They do that every day. They do that every Lord's Day in many, many churches. They mock and malign the messengers of God whenever they hear the Word of God read or exhorted or explained, whether in service or out of service, they want nothing to do with the holy and righteous Word of God. That's the external call which they resist. These are the two that are found in the Bible. Let's see the first one. The first one, the external call that is resisted. Our first example comes from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, 1 to 14. 22, 1 to 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. 
and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Clearly, many in this parable were called, but few of them showed up. Few among the many showed up to the wedding feast in proper attire also, which means the attire of Christ's righteousness. He makes us white by the blood of the Lamb in wedding garments. They did not come properly, and therefore they were thrown away or turned away at the door. Many are called. That's our word. Which call does he mean here? He's talking about the external call, the call of the invitation. The word was preached to them, come to the wedding feast. Who would want to miss a wedding feast? Many people. Many people want to miss it. That's why they turn away. They go away. Many are called, but few are chosen. So one verse, 22:14, speaks of the external call and internal call. One verse right there says both. The chosen receive the internal call. Another place for the external call is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Isaiah says to seek the Lord and call upon him. Isaiah is calling on the people to call upon the Lord. He's calling on the people, preaching to the people to call upon the Lord. Will everyone do so? And he is talking to the wicked because he says so in verse 7, the wicked and the unrighteous. He's telling them that they must call upon the Lord. He's calling on them to call upon the Lord, the wicked. But all of them won't do that. In fact, most of them in the days of Isaiah did not do that, according to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Only a remnant did, according to Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And then one more place is the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts 7, 51 to 53. Acts 7, 51 to 53. Stephen has elaborately and accurately explained the history of God's dealings with the rebellious people of Israel. God's being good and gracious to them, but they are being stubborn and obstinate toward God and the messengers of God. And here, right before they put Stephen to death, they persist in their unbelief, Right before, Stephen says this about them. 751. 
You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute. And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He says that they heard the words of God by the prophets of God, but they always resisted the Holy Spirit. How? Because they resisted the Word of God. In that way, they resisted the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the external call, the preaching of the Word. He means it in that way. He's not talking about the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the resistible grace of the Holy Spirit by means of resisting the word preached, the righteous and holy word preached. Next time, we'll explore more on the internal call, effectual call of the Spirit and the irrevocability of the promises of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.